The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. From Isaiah 64, 1 through 4, and Romans 8, 1 through 17. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the, earth, by, the, by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we have come to the end of our four-week series on revival. Last few weeks, we talked about what revival is. Revival is where God moves in such a way that he awakens individuals to his presence. 
um, who he is, who we are, and, and brings us into the gospel, the, the light and the heat that we talked about way back in, in week one. And as he does that on the individual level, he does it also on a, a communal, on a corporate level among the church, where churches are revitalized, they're invigorated by the gospel, and then the church goes out as the missionaries as they're meant to be and brings about a change in the culture, in the city that reflects the glory of God. And so I wish that we had more weeks to talk about this, to dive in. There's a lot more that I wish we could have done. And, and even this week, I had uh, a different idea in mind for where we would go, go this week, but, but the Lord has led me kind of in a different direction here as I think about what's the most important thing, what's the, the last thing that I can sort of put before you as we think and long for and pray for and really ask for God to bring about revival here in this church and in our city. Um, and, and part of my decision to shift gears a little bit has been because of this next season that's coming up, the next sermon series that we're going to be investing in for the next several months, I think it's three, four, maybe even five months, we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what I wanted to do initially was to talk about what does it look like to live a revived life? What does it look like when, when God is working and he's reviving us as individuals, maybe on the more microscopic level, but here's where I think the, the pairing with the Sermon on the Mount transitions so nicely is because the Sermon on the Mount really is what it looks like for a kingdom life to be flipped upside down, to take the kingdom of God that's at work here and now and to be at work in our lives to change us and revive our everyday lives where Jesus is transforming the ordinary. So I'm, I'm going to let that sermon do that, that series do that as we move into the next weeks. But hear what I want to do in this last Sunday on revival. I wanted to take a look at the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit a lot the last few weeks, um, maybe more in a more subtle way, but here I would really want to put it before you as what the Holy Spirit does to bring and sustain revival. Now, between last week, when we're talking about spiritual warfare, and this week talking about the Holy Spirit, you might be thinking, this church is starting to get a little too charismatic for me, right? Talking about the Holy Spirit, lifting hands, singing, hooping, hollering, right? What's next, flags? Are we going to start doing that? Uh, I, I, I think we're a long way from that. Um, uh, and so we, we are not going to begin slaying sp people in spirit here. Like, nobody's not going to do, do that the whole slaying. You know what I'm talking about? Where you fall over. That's not going to happen. In fact, I think the Holy Spirit gets falsely blamed for a lot of weird stuff charismaniac Christians do, okay? So they use the Holy Spirit as justification for acting crazy, and people are like, what the world is going on here? That's not what we're trying to do here, and, and in fact, try, trying to avoid that ditch, avoid that error of, of being this hyper-charismatic sort of group of people. I've said something that, that I regret in, in previous years where I said that we're charismatic with a seatbelt, right? We're charismatic, but, but we strap it in. We're not going to get too wild here. That's not what we're going to do, but I think that that's been a disservice to us as a church. I think that's been a disservice to us as we understand the role of the Holy Spirit as it downplays, ignores, and restrains the Holy Spirit from doing the work that the Holy Spirit intends to do, from being aware of the presence and the empowering that the Holy Spirit brings to Christians. And as we do that, it stunts revival. Right? You put the, the Holy Spirit, you're staying in the Holy Spirit, put him in a seatbelt, you're going to stunt revival from happening because revival depends on the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? It, it's like when we're asking for God to redden the heavens and come down, that's what we're asking the Spirit to move in a magnificent way. And so it's like to be charismatic with a seatbelt says, okay, well, maybe don't do that. Okay? 
So we don't want to restrain the Spirit. We want to be aware of the Spirit. We want to acknowledge the work of the Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit works, we want to acknowledge what he's doing is valid and necessary for us to be revived. And if we have a revival that doesn't involve the Holy Spirit, then it's just a light show. That's all it is. And so we're asking for God to rend the heavens and come down. And so we're going to take a look here at Romans chapter 8. Like I said, maybe one of the best passages in all of scripture, so robust. I wish I had a a few months to spend in here and maybe someday we'll get to it. But here in Romans chapter 8, we see the Holy Spirit is mentioned 14 times in 17 verses. We don't have time to really dig into every aspect of it. Like John Piper preached through the book of Romans. It took him eight or nine years to go from Romans 1 to Romans 16. Okay, we don't got that kind of time right now. But what I want to do this morning is give you an, an overview of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. So, so just briefly, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. As Christians, we worship God, who is triune, who's three persons in one God. So one God, three unique and distinct persons, the Holy Spirit being the third member of that Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a force, not a vibe, not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a person, and in his personhood, the Holy Spirit is God. He shares the same divine substance, glory, and power as God the Father and God the Son. And as we talk about relationship with God, most of the time, uh, we tend to talk about, like, what's your relationship with, like, the Father like? What's your relationship with the Holy Spirit or with, with Jesus like? And we, we kind of exclude the Holy Spirit from that relational talk about what's my relationship to God like? But here is what we need to know, that, that the Holy Spirit is what opens up to us the relationship with the Father and with the Son. See, if you have a weak relationship with the Holy Spirit, you are, in, in fact, going to have a weak relationship with the Father and the Son, at least not a relationship that it could be, Okay? Because what the Holy Spirit does, it illuminates to us, it reveals to us the glory of the Father, the perfect will of God, and then he warms us up with the work of Jesus. So he reveals to us, right, that's the light that we talked about, but also the heat, that passion, that desire that we have for Jesus that warms us up instead of leaving us cold in our sins. And so we can see here the Holy Spirit both, well, he, he enlivens us, He gives us life, and he revives us in turn. And this is built into this mentality about who the Spirit is, what the Spirit is doing, is built in here to Romans chapter 8. And in verse 2, Paul gives the Holy Spirit a special name. He calls it the Spirit of life. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So here we see this Holy Spirit has a life-giving power that he brings dead things to life by applying the work of Jesus. Now you can think of, I, I feel like I've used this analogy several times. I've got this plant in my office, and there are times when I neglect this plant, and it starts to droop down, get pretty sad looking. And, and I know my plant knows that it needs water, okay? That like all of biology knows. That's why roots grow down. It's searching. It's got its little fingers out there trying to absorb water. But until that water is connected, it has that, that connection to the application of water, that plant cannot actually grow and flourish and have the life it's meant to have. 
The same is true for a Christian. We can know about God. We can know about the gospel until the Holy Spirit brings that reality, that truth to bear on our hearts and connects us and applies that work. We're still dead in our sins. In fact, if you're a Christian, the reason why you're a Christian is because the Holy Spirit has brought to you the gospel, the good news, the truth of Jesus, that you were once dead and now he has made you alive because you have that connection that's been applied through the Holy Spirit. Now, if we use this language, and it's used a lot here in Romans chapter, of life and death, my headset is driving me crazy today. There's this sort of like oscillation between life and death. Right, the Spirit brings life. Well, what is it that's killing us? What, what is it that's, that's leaving us in sort of a dead state? Well, verse 2 identifies it. He says it's the law of sin and death. Right? That, 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 that is what has brought us to the grave. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be bound by? Because he says we've been freed by the Spirit of life. To, what does it mean to be bound by the law of sin and death? Well, simply put, the law of sin and de- death is the default way that we have to relating to God. This is how every human being, by default, relates to God. It's not based on, on this, like, we don't automatically drift toward faith in Jesus by default. Our, our tendency is to drift into works-based righteousness, right? It, it's based on our ability to perform, our ability to please God. And so we, we say, we have this feeling that, okay, if I'm doing things well, if I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm serving people, well, I feel like me and God are just tight, Right? Things are going well. I feel God's nearness to me. But then as soon as you start messing up, as soon as these besetting sins that you struggle with start coming back up again and start, you know, you, you see these trends that have been going on in your life, they start coming back up and you start to feel this distance from God. That's because your thinking, your righteousness, your relationship with God is based upon your works. That's how every default, every human's default we have towards God is based upon my works. Now, you think about how crippling that is to have a relationship with God like that. It's wavering all the time. Like, some days mountaintop highs, other days you're like the worst Christian in the world, okay? You know what what this feels like. I know what it feels like. Now, just think, if we were to take the same mentality of this performance-based mentality and apply that to how we parent, how we how we do marriage, right? That, oh, if if you don't do this, or if you do this wrong, then you're in the doghouse. you got to work yourself out of this rut. How lifeless, how crippling that would be in our marriages, for parenting, any other relationship you have for that matter. When our relationship ebbs and flows on our ability to do good, it leaves us in a depleted life. And, and then he's like, well, what is the standard of good? Because we tend to make up our own standard of goodness, right? We, do, we don't necessarily base our goodness on what God's standard is. We, we make up our own, and it's like we grade on a curve. But God has a clear definition for the standard of goodness, that it's built into the law. Now, here it looks like Paul is talking poorly of the law. Back in Romans chapter 7, Romans 5, he, he talks about the law of God, meaning um, the commandments of God, how God designed life to work best, um, he talks about them in a positive way, like this is the righteousness of God. This is how God wants things to work, but here he talks about it, it seems like in a negative sense, but he's not condemning the law. He's talking about the effects of the law, 
And, and so when he talks about the law, he's not saying, okay, these are just a bunch of rules that you have to follow sort of mindlessly or, or with like a, a dutiful heart. The, the, the righteousness, the, the, the law, the standard of goodness aren't just rules, but it's actually the most humane way for us to live. And in this way, God is showing us what it looks like to live true life. But our inability to keep these rules, to live according to God's law, we constantly are missing the mark, reveals to us our sin, our incompatibility. In fact, here Paul says, listen, uh, for the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. That, that's what, this, what it means to be set on flesh. It means that your, your identity, your performance is riding upon your own ability to be in the flesh. See, if you set your mind on the flesh, you're hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. In fact, it cannot submit to God's law. You cannot please God. And because we see this sin, we miss this mark, it reveals to us this death, right? The wages of sin is death. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6. For us to relate to God on the basis of the law or our ability is to be having our minds on the flesh, and it leads to volatility. Right? That's just what I, I read here in verse 7 and 8. You cannot please God. Now, if, if, if my relationship with God rides on my ability to perform, then all I should expect is condemnation. All I should expect is God being upset with me, displeased with me, disapproving of me. Because while I'm constantly ebbing and flowing, those mountaintop highs, those deep valley lows. But here is the scandal of the gospel. Verse 3 tells us that God does what the law could not do. See, the, the law was meant to give us parameters, a guide to live our life by, that we might live the most humane life possible, but we fail to do it. But then here God steps into our place, that Jesus comes down, he lives the life that we were intended to live, dies the death that we deserve. In fact, that's what, what Paul says, that he was condemned in the flesh. Jesus was condemned in the flesh, that our sin was placed on him. And so what the Holy Spirit does then, so that's the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit takes that work of Christ and he applies Jesus' work to us and as we embrace that, as we have that interaction with the Holy Spirit, he brings Jesus near to us, we find life. That's why it's the spirit of life. In verse 10, Provide some, some nuance to this. But, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Okay, we talked about this righteousness of God, the power of God. See, the righteousness of God is so powerful that it's fixing what's broken inside of us. Now, when we are in Christ, okay, th this, is, this is a unique way to talk about the work of Jesus. So it's not just like, it's not just like I know about what Jesus has done for me, but my life has become so defined by Jesus that I am in him and his spirit resides inside of me. It's a whole new way to relate to God based entirely upon Jesus, that his life redefines mine, that he restores me. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 1. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ, 
that ebbing and flowing, that condemnation that you know should be yours is not yours at all. There's no condemnation. There's no fear of judgment. There's no fear of rejection. And so we can stand, and what we said today, in Christ alone, my hope is found. There's no condemnation. And, and here's the reality here. Condemnation is something that we all fear, right? Well, we don't want God to reject us. But we also don't want other people to reject us. We don't, we don't want to be ousted. We don't want to be canceled, right? We live in a cancel culture. You say something dumb, you think the wrong thing about a mask or no mask or whatever. It's like you get canceled. You're, you're, you're rejected. You're condemned. Nobody wants that. But listen to this. Ray Orland, I love this guy. Man, he says this. In this angry world of blaming and shaming, who doesn't need a non-accusing place to stand and be safe. We don't leverage ourselves into that better place. God lifts us up into that place and relocates broken-hearted failures who collapse into the arms of Christ into this new place of no condemnation. You can live your whole life based on this. What a glorious truth. That for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that place is accessible right now. You see that? He says, there is therefore now, say now, now, right now, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Not once you get your life together, not once you put that, that besetting sin to death, not once you get your, your life all straightened out and, and your marriage is all squared away. No, right now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the word now in verse 1 is immediate. The, the word no, when he says there is, now, there, now, there is therefore now no condemnation, the no is emphatic. See, he's not saying there's, there's less condemnation. There's a more palatable level of condemnation for you to manage and mitigate in your life. He's saying right now there is zero condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. This means, this means that there's a whole new way to relate to God. No longer are we walking on eggshells around God. Oh, oh boy, I hope I don't mess up. I hope I, I, hope I don't upset God. See, the thing that God is probably most upset about is how you think you can upset him by what you do or don't do. So we don't have to walk around eggshells around God. We don't live according to the flesh, that mentality of what I do, my performance. We live according to the spirit who is applying the work of righteousness from Christ. And guess what? That life is a life of peace. It says in verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now listen, in this crazy time, right, in this chaotic world, we're about to, it's about to get worse, people, as we head into an election cycle. In this crazy world, who doesn't need a peaceful place to stand? And here's what gets crazy. Okay, so, so not only, like, 
not only are we sort of brought back into this new relationship with God, but he doesn't keep us at an arm's length. He's like, okay, we've called a truce. I'm not upset with you anymore. I'm not really pleased with you. you know, like that, that's not God's mentality. He doesn't keep us at an arm's length. He brings us in. He scoops us up. He adopts us. That's what verses 14 through 17 are saying. Listen to this. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. See, that's, that's what it's like to live in the flesh. It's fear. Oh, no, what's God think about me today? He says, you don't have that, that, that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is that the way you look at God? When you think of God the Father, is he, does he look at you like maybe your dad did growing up? You know, like you always, always had to feel like, I got to impress my dad, and he's just always got his arms crossed and shaking his head and a little mildly upset with me. Maybe, maybe he's full on upset with you. But here, Paul gives us a different picture. Like kids, who are, our arms are outstretched. My, my youngest, two and a half years old, something like that, he, I don't know why he does it, but every time I walk through my door, daddy, 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 runs up to me. I'm not that great. I don't know why he thinks I'm that great. But, but he has this outstretch. He's excited to see me, and I'm excited to see him. Why is it? Hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. That, that's, that's what we get to be brought into, that, that our arms are outstretched to our Father. Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. See, this changes everything. It goes from this transactional relationship that we have with God and leads us into true intimacy with him where he chooses us, that he brings us in the family, he adopts us, he changes my identity and my name. I'm no longer defined by the identity that I create for myself in the flesh. I'm identified by the work of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is applying that work to my life. And so here we see this Abba, Father, this cry of the deepest part of our heart that's been brought to us, that our spirit, the Spirit of God has implanted inside of us, brings this nearness and endearment that we have to God the Father. This unrestricted access. Nobody has access to me like my kids do. Like, if you call me at 10 o'clock at night, I'm probably not going to answer my phone. Probably not going to do it. My kids call me at 4 o'clock in the morning. Daddy, Daddy had a bad dream. I'm listening. I'm there. This is the kind of access that we have to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And it might not feel like that. Right? Sometimes you feel, oh, the Spirit's so far away. From, I can't feel. It's like, does the Spirit leave me? No, the Spirit, look at this. I can find it. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. See, the moments where you forget, the moments where you think this can't be true, this, is, this seems too good to be true, to have this kind of access to God, the Spirit is bearing witness to this truth. He's like, yep, it's true. Nope. You're kind of dumb right now for thinking it's not true because it's true. Right? Don't we need that? Don't we need? And, and, and so the spirit that's, that's bearing witness to me, I think, is working also through me and through other people to affirm that reality. That we together are the children of God. And he's telling us 
This is true, that you have access even when it doesn't feel like it. Now, as the Spirit adopts us into the family, the Spirit is also teaching us how to live like part of the family. He teaches us, well, you see this, there's a couple places where he says that we live according to the Spirit, that, that he's leading us. Okay, so what he's talking about there, he's, he's teaching us how to live like we are actually the children of God that we are. And so he teaches us in two ways how to talk and how to walk. First of all, how do we talk like the children that we are? We cry out, Abba, Father. Right? We have this prayer. And that this whole thing about revival has been sort of in a, in a covert way. Actually, not even covert, but it's been about prayer. This access that we have to God to call him to act on our behalf. But there's also this reality of how we walk now. Verse 14 tells us we're led by the Spirit. He's, he's guiding us in action. In fact, Paul talks about this in such a profound way in Galatians 2. He says, it's not I who lives, live, but it's Christ in me who lives. Right? He's talking about the Holy Spirit who's residing inside of him, who's leading his life. And the Holy Spirit has such a power that overrides our sinful desires that arrive, arise from within, and he's replacing them with new desires for God and his glory to teach us how to live in the most humane way possible. Now, I don't know about you, But I think I keep the Holy Spirit pretty busy. Between my doubts about actually being the child of God that I am and, and living the kind of life that, I, that God is calling me into, I feel like the Holy Spirit is God's hands full. Don't you? Somebody, testify, bear witness. I just snorted. <laughs> Given how strong my sin can feel in my life, given how, how constant my doubt is, how I can tend to revert back to an orphan mentality or to my fleshly mindset. But listen, the Holy Spirit is not overwhelmed with the work that he has in, his, in your life. Because the Spirit of God, as verses 9 and 14 tell us, has power. The same power that God has that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. That every ounce of power is directed through the Holy Spirit into our lives. Now here's where we see a major shift from Old Testament to New Testament. See, from the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is working from the outside in. Okay, so, so he comes and just as there's like a surge, like a tidal wave moment where the Spirit empowers people or characters in the Bible to do something um, significant that, that momentarily overwhelms them, that gives them a power to help. Think of David as he's slaying Goliath, right? The Spirit kind of moves in in a special way. And we can think about, go through like the, the heroes of the, of the Old Testament, think about, oh man, that must have been so awesome to experience the Holy Spirit in that way where they just had this moment. Like, what was that like? But there's this shift that happens in the New Testament where the Spirit begins working inside out. The Holy Spirit isn't outside detached and comes in, but he actually is inside of us working his way out. We see this in verse 9. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, Spirit is in us, taking permanent residence in our life. Now, in John chapter 14, Jesus is trying to explain what this looks like for the Holy Spirit, this helper who would come and dwell with you and who will be in you. So here we get this picture. The Holy Spirit isn't working in like the tidal wave thing that we saw in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is this internal fire hydrant constantly flowing in the New Testament as we receive Christ and the Spirit dwells in us. There's this constant flow of raw power, so much so that what we have a lot of times goes untapped, 
Right? We've got some incredible resources at our fingertips and how rarely we actually draw from it. And so we might think, you know, what was it like to be a, a, a spiritual hero? Well, in reality, these heroes of the faith, when we get to the other side of eternity, are going to be asking us, what was it like to have the Holy Spirit inside of you, living with you always at all times, bearing witness to the reality of who you are in Christ? This is who we have right now. This is what the Spirit's doing. He's waking us up to who God is, what God has done, and bringing us into this abundant life. Now, this is what makes Christianity so different from every other religion, where other religions say, try to work your way to God and then try to maintain your good graces with God, right? It puts, puts all the onus on you to do this. Well, Christianity says that the Holy Spirit retrieves us from death. He breathes life into us. He adopts us, and then he moves into us and takes up this permanent residence inside us where he's dwelling with us. See, the only kind of a Christian that there is is a Christian who is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a, a Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, it says it right here. I can't find it right now, but it's in there. See, the Holy Spirit is working inside of every single Christian, just not, not just the Christian superstars, every single Christian, no matter how strong or how weak your faith is. And he's doing it from the inside out. Think, think you know how, how a surgeon would, you know, he kind of stands outside the body, he makes the precise incisions and doing the work that a surgeon would do. He does it from the outside. Well, the Holy Spirit's more like a contractor who comes inside of the house, comes inside, starts pushing out walls. Now, C.S. Lewis has this beautiful illustration of this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not, you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking out the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a, a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you would be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, this takes us back to the essence of revival, a place where God himself, his presence occupies and where God's presence is, there is life. This is what it means for us to be revived, to experience revival on an individual sense, and then as it grows out beyond that of the church. It means that we become aware of what the Holy Spirit's doing, that, that not only we're conscious of what the Spirit is doing, but become, we become participants with the Holy Spirit. We don't just ignore his presence, but we lean into it, we yield to it, we celebrate at what God's doing. Now, let me ask you, how would your life change, daily life? How does your daily life change if you were to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit? What would be different? What sort of attitude would you have? Now, if, if you're thinking about this and you're thinking, well, well okay, well, the, the Spirit's going to clean up my act. Right? That, that's true, but, but if you're thinking just about that, then you're still thinking in, in the mindset of the flesh, that you're subjected to the law of sin and death, and it's based on your performance and your own doing. Rather, what I would like to, to encourage you to think of is what kind of characteristics, what sort of, what kind of a, a disposition does the Spirit instill or produce inside of you? 
think there's a confidence. Because if we can say there's no, therefore now no more condemnation, there's a confidence in what the Spirit does. Where I'm not relying on my own work, but I'm relying on Jesus. I think that there's a, a greater sense of joy in how received that life is, right? I didn't accomplish it. Jesus did it for me. And now I have access and intimacy. There's this excitement and passion. And there's a sense of flourishing that's going on in my life. And there's this contentment and peace. See, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in your life. Yeah, he, he, wants, you to, he wants to make you a more moral person. But the way you become more moral is by resting in your core identity as a child of God. It's from this place of acceptance and embrace where we are freed up to truly live, where we don't need to fear God, we don't need to fear others, we don't need to try to prove ourselves. We are finally free to live. Could you imagine what it would feel like to lay hold of that freedom? Could you imagine how that would free you up to treat other people differently, especially people that you don't particularly like? Make you more humble. Again, it's all given. Make you more forgiving because what has Christ done for you? How would that affect your worship? What would Sunday morning feel like if the whole week we were aware of and participating with the Holy Spirit? How would this affect your life in community and on mission? Now, this is the last thing that I want to touch on here as we wrap up this series on revival. Now, if we want to see revival, we talked about this the first three weeks. It's just like the first step is just to create this longing for revival, that we, could, that we believe God can actually do what we're hoping that he would do. Just like going back to Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, right? We're asking for God to do this. Secondly, as God brings bits of revival in our own life, we start living a Holy Spirit-empowered life on mission. This means that we begin to normalize talking about Jesus. I think a lot of times we think talking about Jesus might seem uncomfortable or weird, but here the Holy Spirit has been at work in us in such a profound way that he frees us to normalize talking about Jesus so we can celebrate and talk about and share what Jesus has done with us, done for us in the gospel. Because the Holy Spirit not only wants to make, make you more aware of your relationship with the Father, he wants to bring more people in. And he wants to do it through you, through your sharing. Now, we see the Holy Spirit work in, in incredible ways in the book of Acts. And I think one of the big mistakes that we make is we, we read the book of Acts and think, oh, the Holy Spirit doesn't do that stuff anymore. Like, that, that stopped back in the first century church. No, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's at all true. The Holy Spirit is still doing what he did back then. You see, the church... I think of Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 31. The church is facing all kinds of persecution. They're being told to stop talking about Jesus, right? They, they've been talking about Jesus so much that it's become uh, annoying to the people around them. I wish that were our problem, honestly, that we'd just be so comfortable talking about Jesus that like, we can't help but talk about Jesus. Well, they're starting to ruffle people's feathers. They're, they want them to stop. They're trying to persecute them. And what do they do? They, they don't stop. They ask for more of God, that he would pour out his spirit again, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders. And what do they do? They pray. In Acts 4.31, they say, and when they had prayed, 
the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Just Guys, this is the imagery of Isaiah 64. The mountains trembling. They prayed and the place that they were gathered was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Listen, if your identity is in Christ, and the Spirit has assured you that there is therefore no, now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then you have this confidence, you have this boldness, you have this disposition that, look, at, heaven and hell, or hell might come against you and you're going to still stand because the power of God is so strong. Well, if that's the case, if that, that defines the way that God views us, then how much, sort of this, how much more does this define the way that other people view us? In fact, it, it just makes us not really concerned about that that much. Because here, we have everything we need. We have all the affirmation that we need in Christ. And when the Spirit moves into us, we are emboldened. We realize that there's no condemnation, and we joyfully share Jesus. And listen, the thing that people in our city need most is not their trees cleared, not some uh, antivirus, is that a thing? Yes. Vaccine, can't think of. Like, that's not what people in our city need. The people in our city need Jesus the most. And we have the word of God. We have Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is emboldening us to share Jesus with us. Now listen, you don't need a class to teach you how to share Jesus. In fact, I want to let you in on a secret. Every evangelism class that there is, and every church that you've ever gone to, basically... There's no tips and tricks. It's like, just talk about Jesus. The thing about those classes is there's homework that actually forces you to go out and start talking to people about Jesus. Why do we need homework, people? If we have the best news on the planet, why are we not talking about Jesus all the time? And listen, if you're thinking here, man, this just seems overwhelming. I don't know what to say. And if this is the case, if mission feels like a burden to you, then perhaps, perhaps you have not experienced Jesus in the depths of your soul, the way the Holy Spirit wants to, to bring you to Jesus. And so I would want to encourage you to move all of your chips off of yourself, all of your chips off of your own performance and place them in Jesus and know the freedom and the assurance and the comfort that comes in Christ. Experience the embrace of the Father, the freedom, the true life that Jesus brings us into. And know that every place you go, God has strategically placed you there as a missionary to demonstrate and to proclaim the profound truths of the gospel. What a joy. What a joy. Like, what else is there in this world that we could really just be excited about. This is beautiful. This is what Christ has called us into. And, and by God's grace, man, we're, we're going to see this. Maybe, maybe it's not my lifetime. Maybe it'll be in the lifetime of my kids, but I'm going to pray that revival would come, that more and more the gospel would become real to us as a church, to be enlivened by Christ, that we would see, it's like Isaiah says, it's like things we weren't looking for, God does it. Can you imagine? What kind of a legacy that is to pass on? Oh, God, rend the heavens and come down. Father, we, we thank you. What greater gift is there than Christ? There's no treasure on earth that can even compare 
to what we have in, in the glorious gospel of Jesus. And so, Father, we, we pray that more and more your spirit would be at work making us aware, bringing the gospel deep into our hearts, giving us that spirit that cries, Abba, Father, to know that we no longer stand condemned, but have the approval and the affections of God. And would you quicken our steps, Father? Isaiah talks about how beautiful the feet are, the feet that bring good news. Would we be feet that fly with good news to a perishing world, God? Would you bring revival in our time? Or not. But we want it.